Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. You know, the people of Jesus' day, the people of Stephen's day, felt that they were so much better than the people of Moses' day, that they would never have done the things that those people did, the people who came out of Egypt with Moses, like making the golden calf to worship, for example. But when Stephen was defending himself before the Sanhedrin, he said to them, not only are you exactly like those people, but you're even worse than those people, that you have done things even worse than those people did. Well, needless to say, they didn't want to hear it. However, there was one person there in particular who did hear it, and who, by hearing it, well, a seed was planted in his life that Jesus was able to use later to convert him and to turn him and transform him into the greatest evangelist ever. We're going to talk about that in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Okay, so uh, we're going to go back to uh, Acts chapter uh, 7. We may not... We may not make it all the way home today, but we're going to get close. And um, did I? I knew I heard it somewhere before. So. When I was picking out songs, I picked one out for Stephen. I thought would be, and this was in um, June or May. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, uh, yeah, so uh, we'll see what God wants us to do here. Uh, so let's. We're, I'm going to go back to kind of set the context to uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 41. And uh, then we'll, we'll kind of start with verse 50, which is where we kind of left off, or 49, which, or 48 actually, where we left off last week. So starting in verse 41 uh, to verse 48, it says, That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave him over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. This is from Amos. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? 
you have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made, again, the idea you made with your hands to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers, this is Stephen now again talking, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Again, the idea there is it was made as God directed, but it was made with human hands. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Again, the idea, the, t- the temple was also, everything we're seeing here is made by human hands. That uh, the golden calf was made by human hands. These uh, idols uh, with the Molech and Refan were made by human hands. The tabernacle was made by human hands. The temple was made by human hands. So now here we go today, starting with verse 48. How, and we said up till now, right, that the people who are hearing this, the Sanhedrin, everything that's all these weeks we've been studying this, all this time we've been talking about everything, that so far up to now they've been saying, yes, yes, yes. What's the big deal here? Stephen, is, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. We can, we can get along with this guy. But now he turns the screw in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says, and this is from Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things. And so here you have this wonderful contrast that God uh, is, that, that Stephen is saying uh, uh, and wants these people to see uh, the difference. Your hands made a golden calf. Your hands made a tabernacle. Your hands made an, uh, uh, an altar to Molech. Your hands made a temple. But God hand, God's hands made heaven and earth. So which do you want to worship here? Do you want to worship the things that were made by hands? Or do you want to worship the God who allowed you to make, the God who made heaven and earth? Who, who should be worshipped here? And the reason he's saying that here. Is because the people of that day had begun to worship the temple, as it were. Uh, they had made the temple an idol on par with the people of Moses who made the golden calf. They they were seeing that they were seeing the temple as the place where God dwelt, and that He was confined to that temple, that 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 was the the dwelling place of God in that temple. And in a way, if that's the way you look at it, it's almost as though the temple were greater than God. Because if God is confined to this temple, 
then the temple has control over God. And then if we made the temple made for our hands, we kind of have control over God ourselves. So what what Abraham, I mean, what Abraham, what Stephen is trying to say here is that I haven't blasphemed God. You have blasphemed God because you have made the God who made heaven and earth as being limited by this man-made structure, the temple. And you have made the temple holy in your own mind and heart. But God isn't limited. That There was a time when God dwelt in the temple. His presence dwelt there. But not all of God was self-enclosed and self-contained in the temple. He had a presence there. And that's what made the temple holy. God's presence at the time when he was there. But but, but you've taken it now, after all of these years, to an extreme to where you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping the temple. And that is no better than your forefathers who worshiped the golden calf made by hands because you're worshiping a temple that was also made by hands. If you remember, what was one of the things that uh, uh, Stephen was accused of? Go back to Acts chapter 6 and look at verse uh, 13. 613. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. So they have made the temple holy. They have seen the temple as the only place where God can be worshipped. They have they, they have taken this and elevated it to equal with God. But it's only a place made by hands. So what Stephen is saying here is God is bigger than this. You've made God too small. And this isn't the God that we worship or should worship. William Barclay said in his commentary, he said, they had finished up with a Jewish God who lived in Jerusalem rather than a God of all men whose dwelling was the whole universe. And John MacArthur said in his commentary, The temple was the symbol of God's presence, not the prison of his essence. So what Stephen is saying here is, who is really blaspheming here? You say it, I blasphemed against God. I'm not blaspheming against God. You're blaspheming against God because you you are limiting God and putting him in this temple. And you said, I blasphemed against the holy temple, but I can't, it's not possible to blaspheme against the holy temple because the temple is not holy in and of itself. So you've accused me of blaspheming God, blaspheming the temple, but I haven't blasphemed either one. You're the one. You're the ones who are blaspheming this. You have made the temple your golden calf. And that's, that's not right. That is something you're guilty of. See if I have any comments to make about that point or questions or anything. I think some people do that today with the church, actually. That they think you have to go to church to believe it, you know, to worship God. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should go to church to worship. But, you know, if you can also worship God at home, you can mm-hmm. worship God, which, you know, we had to do during COVID. But, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's not... Well, the difference today is that when Jesus was crucified, 
if you remember. At the moment of his death, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, right? No longer, at that point, God's presence left the temple. At that moment, there was no more separation between man and the Holy of Holies, where God's presence once dwelt. Again, not all of God's presence, but a part of God's presence dealt in the Holy of Holies. But on, at the crucifixion, when Jesus died, the, uh, when that temple, when that uh, veil was torn from top to bottom, it represented that God's presence in the temple left the temple, was no longer dwelling in the temple. Why? Because now, the temple is no longer God's dwelling place. Where's God's dwelling place now? In us, right? We are the temple. The presence of God that once dwelt in the temple now dwells within each of us as believers. So there's no need for a temple anymore for God's presence to dwell because now God's presence dwells within each one of us as his temple. And so, uh, you know, that's what, what you're saying there is right because uh, we take God with us wherever we go. God, we are God's temple today. Uh, there's one thing I love about um, uh, the 23rd Psalm, you know, where it says, May goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. I was always confused by that. I was like, May goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Well, that's no good. I don't want goodness and mercy. I want mercy. I want mercy and goodness to catch up to me. You know, it, what good does it do to follow? It's like chasing me, like goodness for chasing me all of my life. Well, that doesn't do me any good. But that's not what David was talking. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about may goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. What he was meaning there was that may the places I go be better when I leave them than they were before I got there. May goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life means, may I leave goodness and mercy behind me everywhere I go. So it follows me. If I go there, it's I bring goodness and mercy. Then when I go somewhere else, it, it, it it's there. And then where I go next, it, it's there. And where I go next, it's there. And so goodness and mercy follows me because I'm leaving it with me everywhere I go because I'm taking God with me when I go to those places. Stan. Um, just would you clarify a little bit more? So I don't think we're saying the church is not a holy place, are we? No. Without, no. without, the church is just a building. The only time it's a holy place is when we gather together to worship God and he is here with us. So uh, when we leave here, the church is, is, you know, it's made by hands again. Uh, there's nothing really special about a church what makes a church special is when we gather together to worship God and where we are, God is present also. Now, that's not to say that the church doesn't have holiness things attached to it. You know, there are Bibles in the church. Those have holiness attached to them. Uh, there are crosses in the church. Those have holiness attached to them. Just like, you know, in, uh, in the temple, there were things that had holiness attached to them. But they are not holy. God makes them holy. God's presence makes those things holy. So if God is not there, they're not holy. They're only holy when God is present. So God is the is is the holy one and 
Without him, nothing is holy, but with him. That's why we're being holy really means to be set apart. And so we are holy because with as believers, when the Holy Spirit lives within us, we're set apart from unbelievers in that way. And so we are now the temple, and we are now holy because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And when we gather together, then that's a holy place because where we are, he is. Yes, Becky. I have a question. In Ezekiel 43, the glory returns to the temple. Mm -hmm. God came in. Did it remain there until the veil was torn? Yeah, there there was a time when God's present le- presence left uh, the temple, but yeah, generally speaking, that at the times when uh, it says that God's God dwelt in the temple, what it means is that a part of God dwelt in the temple. He had a presence there. He dwelt between the uh, the, the cherubim, as it were, on the mercy seat. But it wasn't God in his totality that was there. As a matter of fact, if you want to, look back at um, 2 Chronicles. Let me find it here. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now this is at the dedication of the temple. And this is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. The, the title of this section and my Bible says, Bible says Solomon's Prayer of Dedication. So uh, if you go to verse 18 of chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, it says, and this is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. He says, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. If you skip down to verse 20, may your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. So the idea is that even Solomon, when he built the temple and dedicated, knew that God wouldn't dwell there in his totality, but that there would be God's presence there uh, during the time. And so the temple was made holy by God's presence, but they were to worship God, not to worship the temple. So, like Jan said, you know, the church today, we're not to worship the church. We're to come to church to worship the Lord. So this is part of his defense where he's saying, okay, not me, but you. I'm not the one who blasphemed God. You're the one who blasphemed God because my God is big. My God created the heaven and the earth, and this is his footstool. Your God is contained in the temple, and you have begun to make the temple an idol. Just like, and, and, and what Stephen is really trying to do here is to say to the people of his day that you're, you're just like your forefathers. You're no better than they were because they worshiped and made an idol of a golden calf were made by hands, and you are doing the same thing by worshiping the temple made by human hands. You're no better than they are. I'm not blaspheming, you're blaspheming. So then he goes on with the next argument. Let's go back to uh, Acts and look at uh, verse um, 51. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are, here's my point. You are just like your fathers, he's saying. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's interesting that Stephen 
calls these people stiff-necked. You stiff-necked people. He must have chosen those words purposely. He could have called them a lot of different things. You baby sissy whiny girls, you know. <laughs> Which sometimes I've called my son that. But that, that's beside another point. Like the time he had a broken ankle. And I said, get back out there and play. You're just being a baby sissy whiny girl. And then we went to the hospital and his ankle was broken. I felt, I felt terrible. I'm the worst father ever. Don't report me. That was when he was about eight years old. But anyway. So... Why did he say that? Well, let's go back to Exodus. Let's go back to Exodus for a minute. Let's go all the way back to Exodus. Let's go to uh, chapter 32, Exodus 32, verse 9. Exodus 32, verse 9. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going back to verse 7. It says, <laughs> Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you out of Egypt. Verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you you into a great nation. This is what God called those people, uh, the golden calf. They were stiff-necked people. And so when Stephen, again, he's trying to get into their minds that they're they're just like they're just like their forefathers. He chose those words specifically because these people knew those words. They knew what Moses had uh, written. They knew what God had called them in that day. And so when Stephen specifically purposely says, you stiff-necked people, they knew immediately that he was saying again, we're just like them. But, but see, these people thought they were so far beyond what their forefathers had been. What they did, we would never do. And Stephen says, you're just like them. You're stiff-necked people, just like they were. And with uncircumcised hearts and ears. He's saying, you take such great pride in your circumcision. It sets you apart as the people of God. But it means nothing. It's just a physical thing. It's a physical obedience. You're, you're so obedient to God because you've been circumcised. But that is nothing more than a physical obedience. And that's the whole problem. You're obedient in works, but you're not obedient spiritually. You're not obedient in your heart and spirit. You're just going through the motions. It's all for show. It doesn't really mean anything to you. So you think, oh, we're circumcised as people of God, but... It doesn't mean anything to God because he sees your heart and your ears and those are uncircumcised. They're, you're not being obedient. You think you are by physically doing something, but you're not because you're not spiritually obedient. Dennis? I understand what you just said. Uh, I want to know from our physicians among us, what's, what stiff neck means because yeah, I've... Uh, when I have a stiff neck, I go to the doctor. <laughs> so, where does that image come from? I mean, I understand what you're saying in Exodus, but I don't understand that image. I would have thought it's because they can't bow their head to the Lord. That's what I. Was That's thinking. a good idea. I like That's that. That's what I was thinking too. Or, or they can't look up to him. In other words, because their neck is stiff. 
And the person who is stubborn and persisting is going to stand like, yeah. like this. That's what I think. Yeah. You know. He's stiff necked because he spent too many years studying. It's all those years saying, whatever you say. Amen. I have no idea what you're talking about. I better be careful, right? I am in church after all. He's a lot better when we're alone and running. I think it too has something. I think it too has something to do with, uh, you know, the idea of stubbornness for some reason. Yeah, like the stubbornness. Yeah. There's actually seven, several places in the Bible that this is used. Uh, and this is almost too small for me to read, but it's, uh, um, it looks like Ezekiel. It looks like, um, uh, I'm sorry, I can't see it. But anyway, there's more than, more than a couple of places. Yeah, I, you know, uh, to me, if I were going to put it on another way of saying it, is that you guys are a pain in the neck. <laughs> You're a pain in the neck. So, and another word here that's interesting is the word where he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The word always there in the original Greek, I, mean, I wrote down, it means perpetually, incessantly, invariably, any and every time. So what he's saying is, you guys always, perpetually, incessantly, invariably, any and every time, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Every single time, invariably, incessantly, any and every time, perpetually. I mean, you never are open to the movement of the Holy Spirit. So, Hollis is the term that Dennis is talking about when he sees his doctor. But in this case, what we're talking about is being argumentative and yes. stubborn, yeah. which is what goes back to Exodus. Yeah, I, love, yeah, I think it's I think it's the idea of stubbornness. I think mm-hmm. is you know. Because we stubbornly we we, st- we stubbornly hold on to our own thing, what we want, our own decision. We will handle it. It's in our hands. We'll take care of it. And we're stubborn to give that up to God. We st- our, our point of view is the point of view that others should listen to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we're the ones that are right. <laughs> and you hold on to that stubbornly, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> we're willing to argue. About <laughs> so uh, let's go on then. So verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And now you, and here he gets his pointy finger out. You, it wasn't bad enough he's talking, now he's pointing his finger at him. You have betrayed and murdered him. So he's saying, you know, you're just like your four, is it, you're just like your forefathers? No, you're worse than them. Because they killed the prophets who prophesied about the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. You're, you're even worse than they were. They were bad enough to uh, murder all of the prophets who said the Messiah is coming, but you have murdered him 
himself. You have, you have, you betrayed him and murdered him, and you did this. And verse 53, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. So remember, they accused him of blasphemy against God. He said, not me, but you, because my God's big and your God's small. Blasphemy against the temple, holy temple. He says, you can't blaspheme against the holy temple because the temple's not holy. And if you go back to, let's go back one more time to Acts 6.13, it says, they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. And he says, you said that I, I blasphemed against the law. I haven't blasphemed against the law. You blasphemed against the law because angels, God handed you uh, this law and you've received it, but you have not obeyed it. Have no other gods before me. Well, they're big, they're worshiping the temple. Uh, make no idols, uh, but they've made an idol of the temple. Uh, have uh, do not take the name of your God in vain, and yet they're taking His name in vain by not obeying Him. Uh, uh, do not murder, and yet they're. Wanted to, they murdered Jesus. They wanted to murder Peter. They're going to murder Stephen. Uh, and bear no false testimony. Don't lie. I mean, the whole case against him is one big lie. So he says, who is really blaspheming the law here? Not me, but you. So now Stephen has completely turned the tables on the Sanhedrin. He says, you know, you said that I blasphemed this, but it, but I didn't. You said that I blasphemed that, but I didn't. You're the ones who have been the blasphemers. You're the ones who are the problem. And not only that, you're no better than the people of the golden calf. And not only that, you're actually worse than they were. And so that everything that's come before that we've been studying in this whole chapter 7, has led up to this passage today because all of that was to set the stage and the context for Stephen to say and to point his finger and say, you are the disobedient ones. You are the ones that God is not happy with. You are the ones who are not being the people that God wants you to be. I, I'm... I'm not guilty of these things. You're guilty of these things. Now, how do you think they're going to react to that? No wonder they stoned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know what we're going to find out when we, we we're, we're going to find out next week when we we go into the actual stoning of Stephen. So next week, I hope to accomplish the stoning of Stephen and the reaction of that. And what you're going to find out is that basically one of the things that they had to stop him and stone him was because. The more he talked, the more guilty they felt. And the only way to make them feel better about themselves themselves and stop feeling guilty was to stop him from talking. I can't imagine they didn't feel guilty afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that's interesting is that there was a man there who heard it all and saw it all. And... uh, Afterwards, of course, Jesus appeared to him, but uh, the preparation of that moment started with 
what he heard and saw here, and that was Saul who had become Paul. And so Stephen, uh, in what happened to him and what he said, and the way he defended himself, the argument he made, and the way he dies, set, uh, planted the seed for Paul. As bad as Paul became, and he was terrible, there was still something planted that God eventually was able to use. And, uh, and Saul, Paul, we'll find out next week, I think that this never left him. This, this was something that he remembered the rest of his life, uh, the kind of person that Stephen was, what Stephen's testimony was, and who God really was, and who Jesus really is. Uh, and of course, it's a lot easier when he appears to you on a road, when you're walking down the road. But, uh, but that, that, you know, that only happened because something in Saul's life made him available and ready to be used by God in that way. And, uh, you know, God doesn't just take, I don't think God would just take that kind of sinner that Saul was and what Saul did and just arbitrarily say, no, you're going to be my guy. But I think that because of the seed that was planted here, that that made Saul able to be used by God in the way that he was. This was the this is what set it up for Saul, that he was part of this. So the point is that some people reacted to this very negatively and probably didn't feel guilty at all, but some people maybe started thinking, hmm, maybe there's more to it than this. So anyway, so okay, so that's it for this week, but next week we're going to really try to finish this up and uh, go through uh, what happened to Stephen and the uh, aftermath of that. So thank you all for paying attention today and contributing the way that you did. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today, and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.